Hi, I'm Liz Williams of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast that explores the intersection of museums and cuisine. We're here today with Elizabeth Faulkner. She's a chef, often noted for competing in cooking competitions and cooking games. She's the president of Women Chefs and Restaurateurs, involved with many charities, and also a very, very active just generally in the hospitality industry. And she's an advocate for the reduction of food waste. So she's here today. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so you've been here five minutes or so? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I wanted to ask you whether this is sort of what you expected, or did you have an, Im- an image of what a uh, food museum might be? Well, um, I've been to the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. which is a little different than this. Yes. Um, it has kind of like just curated shows that run for a period of time, but on one sort of focal point. And then I've been to, is it the Smithsonian where Julia Child's Kitchen yes, is? Yes, yes. I've been there, but it's been a while. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen um, the recent induction of Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Finnegar, mm-hmm. friends of mine and great chefs in L.A. Um, and then... This is my first time here in this museum, and uh, when you said that there was a whole gallery on absinthe, I thought, okay, great, because I love absinthe, first of all, <laughs> and I uh, like the stories around it, um, but I didn't know you had all this other information here about all these other sort of bits and pieces from Louisiana and around, and just sort of evolution of some some food culture in the United States, so it's, it's great. I'm sort of distracted by everything around me. Well, because this was a market at one time, we um, decided to treat every state in the South as a market stall. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of gives you a sort of cohesive feeling about each state, but then they're next to each other so you can see similarities and why there's kind of spillover and all that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I feel like I'm just brushing on the surface and I need to spend a few days here. <laughs> And so why, what has driven you to go to places like the Museum of Food and Drink and uh, other places that are really, really the beginnings, I would say, of um, food museums? Uh, Really, there aren't that many museums dedicated to food. No, there aren't really. um, And I think it's interesting because I really do like learning and understanding um, food history from lots of different areas around the world and I love reading books around food and I feel like I've read more sort of memoir books about food than any other kind of food related things but um, but I'm also like really kind of I've been obsessed for many years or I was at least obsessed maybe I still am with um, ingredients and packages and all of the industrialized food stuff that we have in this country and I there was a period of time where I always wanted to kind of go back and say there must have been a truly a better Twinkie than what we're seeing today. <laughs> or, you know, some, sometimes you wonder, like, somebody must have had a good recipe, but then they, they put it into a, you know, a manufacturing process or on a, online. And then, of course, that changes just with the engineering, but then it changes over time depending on how the companies run, etc. Um, but I do like kind of, I guess, trying to understand the origins of things. One of the things that I, I have always been fascinated by which is a little bit different from what you're talking about, but definitely something that I think has to do with the history. It's like Columbus was looking for a way to the east 
because he wanted spices. Mm -hmm. And what happened was he landed here in America, and there are spices here, and they were just totally overlooked. Instead of saying, oh, look, there's filet, or there's um, chili that could be a powder, or whatever, they, they, that just kind of passed them by. And I always thought that that was really a mistake, because even if he realized he wasn't in India, um, he should have realized that maybe there's something we could find here that would be similar to what we were looking for. Yeah, I think that is kind of a fascinating thing about people in general. It's like uh, today people still get kind of stuck on, oh, but this isn't like the chili I have from, you know, my homeland or my grandmother's homeland or whatever, um, which I think is a mistake because I think we need to pay more attention to what really historically has grown in places and maybe revive some of those things. Um, and like I was telling you, I was in Thailand recently. Mm-hmm. And here in America, I think of Thai food as having, you know, pretty much putting um, cilantro and um, Thai basil to finish dishes. It's a lot of the, or even in Vietnamese food. But when I was in Thailand, we had all of these herbs. Like, there was actually one restaurant we went to in Chiang Mai, and there were all these herbs at a station that you could go pick a plate of and put into your soup and your stews and stuff. Oh, wow. But none of... I'd never recognized any of the the herbs. I mean, we had we had to kind of look some things up because we were like, oh, it's. We asked my friend Hong, who Hong Taimi, who's a chef um, from Thailand and works in New York and all over the place. But she said, she's like, oh, it's whatever in Thai. That's just what it is. But she goes, I don't know what its translation is. But so we were like, oh, these are some kind of sarsaparilla leaves, and these are some kind of other culantro related thing, or this is. So it was just eye-opening because I'm like well what do I know about Thai food nothing you know here here I am in the in the main flavor central part of Thailand and they have completely different herbs than I know and I love the idea that you get to choose the herbs that you want to to put in your food well that was just really cool too yeah yeah I mean it's not just oh here's a little condiment tray or something there was like a station where you did this right yeah, basically they just, somebody went and, you know, picked the herbs and put them on a, a cute little thing. It was an outdoor kind of uh-huh. restaurant and kind of raining while we were there and just kind of picture picturesque of what you think it might be like in Thailand and just everything there is so aromatic. But I just think it's funny because I'm sure that we have other herbs here that we're just not paying attention to. I think it is fascinating that people, sometimes you think this kind of cuisine needs to have these kind of spices or herbs. And then, obviously, when you migrate or move to a different country and you can't get exactly the same thing, um, and you, I, it makes sense. People crave those flavors. They mm-hmm. want to have those mm-hmm. flavors. Um, it's, nostal- it's nostalgic and, and sort of, I mean, you are kind of where you're from. But it changes wherever you go in the world, and I think that's the fun and inventive part about cooking. It's like, you can be from another country and move somewhere else and maybe you can't grow exactly the same things maybe you can grow some of the things um but how fun to discover a bunch of new things to add to the cuisine oh yes yeah i think it's it's wonderful and all those fruits i mean not only is the seasonings but different fruits that you haven't seen before and vegetables yes and the way they're used may be different i mean there's all kinds of things to learn i i agree that's the best thing about travel i know (laughs) and and not just going to a restaurant that's been brought here even if they have all that fruit because you want to be in the place where they're doing it 
and see the way they do it and not kind of translate it back into a restaurant or whatever. Yeah. Just yeah, the way the, it, it actually is. I mean, there's really nothing like going to a Thai market and walking by the durian stand. <laughs> <laughs> And I, li- I actually really like durian. It's a, you know, stinky, uh, giant, dangerous tropical fruit. <laughs> dangerous in that the shell of it's like a big spiked ball yes, that yes. could fall on your head yeah. if it fell off a tree. <laughs> and, uh, but then when you cut it open, it's really, it's really yeah. fruity and, and sulfuric and aromatic. Mm-hmm. But yes. really good. Yes, yes. I, I think that, um, that that's really one of the best things about food and culture that you can experience is when you see it in place and you see how the geography makes things the way they are and um, and just the history of the people and all of that sort of thing. I, I just think that's the most fun. It really is. When I was in Tahiti mm. uh, and, and in some of the islands in French Polynesia, we were eating coconut in so many different forms. Mm. And... Um, I saw that they would cut open a baby coconut and feed it to to a baby as the way we would mash up a banana because it's so soft when it's a baby, baby coconut. Yeah. And I just, I didn't know anything about coconuts and that was just fascinating to me. Yeah. It was really interesting. And once in, um, in Dominica, one of the Caribbean islands, one of the very, very undeveloped Caribbean islands, uh... I was with some other people, and we were walking, 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 and we were hot, and there was no water, and we were thirsty, so we saw somebody else walking the other way down this this road, and we asked whether there was any place where we could get water, and he says, oh, don't worry about it. He climbed up a coconut tree, brought down a coconut for each one of us, cut off the top so we could drink the coconut water. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty ultimate. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Totally. And and it was just like, well, of course you don't need bottled water. You've got a coconut tree That's right. There. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was really great. So, yes, I, I know. I know what you mean. So, tell me a little bit about some of your interest in food waste mm-hmm. and your experience that brought you to your interest and how, how that all developed. Um... Well, you know, I worked and owned restaurants for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, it, you know, somebody who opened a, a bakery first that turned in a bakery cafe that turned into a full-on restaurant, um, and then eventually another satellite cafe and another restaurant. Um, it's I feel like restaurant people really need to always. It's kind. Of, it's sort of built into the system, hopefully, um, but. Because the margins are so low in restaurants anyway, mm-hmm. um, one has to look at pretty much utilizing everything and getting the most out of every ingredient that comes in. Um, and and if, if people aren't doing that, it's really just a huge mistake because you're basically just throwing money away. Um, and in, a, in an industry where the margins are so slim, you, you can't really afford to do that. Um, but certainly we've all, like I grew up, you know, sort of more French trained and peeling and turning vegetables and fruits and stuff and um, not necessarily really thinking, really wasn't taught to think about all the ingredients and what we were doing with any scraps. It was sort of just sort of like somebody would make sure you weren't burning or throwing away everything Mm -hmm. and putting it in the garbage. Mm -hmm. Like they would 
was more of a disciplinary right. <laughs> style. What do they do with all those turnings? Well, I mean, classically, people would just use those in stocks and stuff, too, mm-hmm. in sauces. Um, but I think the adaptation of, um, you know, speaking in the United States, I mean, this is kind of a bigger conversation because there, I think we have to try to utilize everything today in restaurants, and maybe we haven't always been trained that way. But also, because of our long-time, you know, economic surplus in this country, um, we haven't had to be frugal. Mm-hmm. We haven't had this, um, we've had this luxury since, you know, since the Second World War of really booming economy and, um, and overabundance and growing too much and not... And so, like, our problems right now are basically a byproduct of having overproduction and over-farming and everything. And so it's kind of a shame because, like, here this sort of food waste culture is around us and but and we're sort of to blame for it. But at the same time, it's like, well, we shouldn't have been growing so much stuff in the first place. So we haven't really done a good job of paying attention to what the, the land that we live on needs. Yeah. And I think, but we're starting to feel the... that sort of revolution take place. And so do you think that we would be responsive as as an economy to people actually buying less? Because it seems to me that it's all based on growth and that if you don't grow, it's not enough to be subsistent. You have to grow. And that's Well, this is a big battle, yeah, because every, you know, Think about how much we're talk. We always talk about develop. People all around me all the time are talking about developing your brand, and you know, it's all about like Wall Street basically because you want you've got investors and you need, you know, the bottom line needs to keep growing. Growing. And, um, yes. So and we have a we have a, a whole country based on that. <laughs> um, when in, in actuality, what really needs to happen is our whole value value system needs to kind of shift and be. Uh, I feel like chefs can lead this charge just because we are supposed to be more of the caretakers of food supply and how that, what we do with that food supply. So um, I think, you know, I think there's hope in sort of the, the, I would say, trending of people coming back around to um, maybe less bigger farming and more smaller farming. We're seeing more farmers markets around the whole country and smaller towns too, so that's a good sign. you know, chefs are using a lot more varieties of things than, than certainly 20 years ago sure. across the country, mm-hmm. not just in a couple of cities. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that when people start, you know, we I love the whole like ugly fruit or you know the second vegetables yes, or yes. Um, stuff uh-huh. that doesn't fit the profile of what a perfect tomato looks like, mm-hmm. which is absurd. Um, well, you have so much stuff in this, in this museum that talks about the, the guy from uh, Popeye's Chicken with the perfect, every chicken must taste the same. I'm like, oh, my God. No, it's this really is where, nuts. Yes. This is nutty. Um, but that's always been my favorite thing about food stuff. If I, like, you know, luckily I was in California for so long, and when it was elephant heart plum season next to Indian peach mm-hmm. season, and you could taste... You can do that around a lot of places, but just taste the different varietals. Mm-hmm. And you, I'm not sure. It's like they all have their own personality. So that's that's what needs to be celebrated more. Um, and yeah. we have to be able to say this really tastes good and still appreciate it when it maybe is ugly. 
so yeah well and also like I, I you know try to define what ugly means it's not that doesn't this idea of like the perfect it's like in plating I'm always I've always told people you know you, you come work with me we're not going to put I don't believe in symmetry mm-hmm. um, I actually just don't like it I like the disruptive plate um, mm-hmm. or um, more architectural geomet- geometric shapes and I'm somebody who would rather have square or rectangular cakes rather than round. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure why that is, but I just I'm always <laughs> like that better. I think it's because I just want... I like the unexpectedness. I like surprising people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're not afraid of chaos. No. In fact, I think it's sometimes so much better. Yes. It's always full of surprise, <laughs> at least. <laughs> that may be the pastry chef side of me, you know, just liking the surprise. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to ask you a sort of chef question. So there are a lot of chefs who are doing very, very precious food. And it's very expensive. And we really laud those people and think of them as artists and whatever. But there are just many, many people who cannot ever afford to eat that food. And so do you think that, I mean, obviously chefs have a right to do whatever they they want. I mean, they can say, this is the line I want to be in, or whatever. But do you think that there is some also some um, uh, obligation to be worried about the food that uh, is eaten by people who can't afford this kind of uh, precious food? Well, I think, to be honest with you, I think there's just, because we eat so much food, I mean, you know, we have to eat something every day Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. hopefully um and i think that there's room for all kinds of artistic expression in food stuff so i feel like we need and if it was all the same and we all just kind of went and got Mm -hmm. you know stood in line at a soup kitchen that that would be kind of hard Mm -hmm. that would be depressing it would not show all the potential that food has Mm -hmm. um for ingredients certain ingredients have um so i think like I think there's room for everybody. I, 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 obviously, not everybody can eat at all those kind of restaurants, but some people are, you know, super talented. Let's just say musicians, and some people are super talented um, visual artists. But I do think that that we need to have all different kinds of chefs because, to be honest with you, sometimes in fine dining, high end restaurants, that where, where some people might say that the food is too precious, a lot of those chefs. Um, have been able to travel and they sometimes uh, bring technique or um, other flavors or, um, in- or or can resuscitate ingredients mm-hmm. um, meaning like you know not everybody's going to go to Chambrock fancy restaurant mm-hmm. um, or Alinea in Chicago mm-hmm. but um, but sometimes you have something and you think oh my gosh it's just a it's a magical combination or it's the, the presentation that's so stunning and mm-hmm. um you know, that's not meant to be food for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not trying to be too precious. It's sort of like, but that's a great, it's like going to theater. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it might be expensive, but also so is going to the theater. And it's a full time, it's a full four hour show at dinner like that. And you get to eat. Right. So I love that kind of stuff. But I also, and I think some of those chefs are very generous in doing all kinds of charity and fundraisers too. Um, not everybody, more than, some more than others, but um, because it's just such a big category of an, of an industry, mm-hmm. um, 
there's just there are all kinds of people doing all different kinds of food stuff and sometimes we need more of one thing versus the other and sometimes we have to mix it up right <laughs> and sometimes i i do think that we have um we forget to look at the artistry in the everydayness of certain foods that we eat that um, can be just as stunning as some of the more um, expensive Higher things. end, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. But I think even when you talk about, like, you know, Rene Redzepi and mm-hmm. uh, Noma in Copenhagen or or Albert Adria in Spain and you know sure that's like super fine dining mm-hmm. but those guys are genuinely interested in their own terroir and what comes from their area and how to celebrate that and really um, you know they've really created movements from, from right. that kind of thinking right um, and that does actually it's almost like um, the devil wears Prada you know when when Meryl Streep says you know um, that sweater that you're wearing comes from you know, it's it trick. It, not like trickle down economy. That doesn't really work. But the trickle down of the of the design, the high end yes. designer mm-hmm. that ends yes. up at you know uh, the Gap or Limited is right. like you know it's part of the whole. Things become trendy because some chef says, "Oh my God, this is such a great, delicious ingredient, and look, it's sustainable and amazing, and we should be eating more of it." And, and then all of a sudden, everybody's using everybody lentils and everything. Wants to eat it. Yes, <laughs> and lentils are not expensive. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Might have started out as an expensive dish, mm-hmm. like you've never had it before, but then you find out you can use it too. Yes, yes. So, um, tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk about tonight. Mostly, I'm going to talk about um, creativity and sort of being a chef warrior and what that really means. Um, just the idea of, um, I just feel like we don't value creativity in the ways that I'd like to see. Um, sometimes I feel like uh, a lot of a lot of us in the business will just sort of follow other trends mm-hmm. when in fact we have this we have so much freedom to create be creative with our ingredients. And and what's happening with food waste and climate issues is really dependent on us being creative people and dealing with you know how what else can we use to make something even more exciting. It's almost scary, all the climate issues, um, and that if we don't very real. put our creativity to work, then we're just being stupid. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we. I feel like sometimes we're a country of, um, like, we're so Protestant in a way. We're so in denial of a lot of things, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, like, for example, like, um, the, what are those cookies called? I can't really probably name brands, but, like cookies that are lower like don't have the carbs right like sugar free whatever it's so unsatisfying like you end up eating a whole package of them because you can't even (laughs) just can't get there with them (laughs) right and so it's sort of like i'm trying to eat better but i'm actually not yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) no i i mean i generally think that's true and even if it's not because there's no sugar or whatever, it's because there's no fat, there's just something that you've left out of it, which you just want, and it makes you feel good. And Yeah, um, I mean, like, just, or just have one, you know, organic, uh, lower sugar peanut butter cup. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty satisfying. Actually, having just good quality chocolate 
is so satisfying. Mm-hmm. Or just going to Willie Jean's is pretty satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, it's dangerous yeah. here. <laughs> oh, that's what they say. Everybody says you come here and you you, know, you gain 12 pounds in a week and you don't even realize it. And then those 12 pounds never go away. <laughs> <laughs> those biscuits stick around. Yeah, that's uh, in particular the people who come here go to school and they're like 18, 19. They've been able to eat anything they ever wanted and then they come here and all of a sudden they, they gain 20 pounds. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you don't have to. No, you don't. And and partly it's because I think, you know, they say this, this isn't the only place where people say it, but that we live to eat, we don't eat to live. Mm. And yeah. um, and so people will eat another helping or they'll eat a bigger portion or whatever just because it tastes so good. And instead of saying, I'm full. And, yeah. And stopping. Yeah. And... We do a lot of things also, I think, probably that are quite sedentary, like sitting around listening to music and, uh, you know, stuff you gotta like that. you got to get up and dance. Yeah, you have to move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's also part of it. Um, it's a, it is definitely a tough place. Um, I've been in places, just as a visitor, really, where people eat to live, and I've just always felt like something was wrong. <laughs> You know, but it's funny because I think that, like, New Orleans still celebrates so much um, stuff that's delicious, but, like, like I feel like can you still get mufalada sandwich? Like, it's still a big deal oh, here, right? Yeah. That's a big party people sandwich. people still eat red beans and rice every Monday. Well, that's a good thing. Yes, it is. I mean, a that's a, actually a really good right. it's a healthy thing. meal. Yeah. Um, there's, I think it still celebrates a lot of the sort of over-the-top delicacies of the region mm-hmm. um, but there are other things that probably just need to be revived other recipes that people have you know lived on without it being and I also think that a lot of times the home version of the, the dish is much healthier mm. than the one that you get when you go out to eat at a restaurant because they're gilding the lily well that's and true so if you were to eat it at home it wouldn't be something so horrible and, uh, you know, that's really true. And um, I mentioned to you that I was in, before I went to Thailand, I was in China mm-hmm. um, for a good chunk of time. And um, so we were eating at a lot of restaurants, you know. Um, but then we, a couple times we ate at some people's homes. Yes. And that was so fascinating to see the difference between, and it's this, so it, the, it's true everywhere. Like yes. the restaurants are always going to sort of take it a little over the top, add a little more salt, add a little more fat. Um, maybe just serve you more than you need and but not true in a home you kind of make what people are going to eat and I think we all need to sort of remember that and I would love for it to trend in restaurants where people serve what this portion that people should eat not like what they think they want to eat what they're going to complain about if it's not big enough but like real and then just price appropriately Mm -hmm. you know yes I tried that in San Francisco actually uh around 2008 where I was like I'm not I don't want to make giant portions. I can't eat like that. Yeah. And uh, so I would make smaller plates, charge appropriately, not very expensive. So we encourage people to taste things, like a, almost like tapas, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think people were ready for it yet. Oh. Still got a lot of pushback on it. I, I can imagine. I mean, there are places here where people are getting servings that are falling off the plate intentionally. And they act about how this is, you know, so much 
uh, food that you get for whatever they're charging. And all I can think of is nobody can eat that. That's just gross. You know? <laughs> I know. Well, you know what's funny? Because I noticed um, a sign here that says famous uh, Charlie's New York Deli restaurant, famous for overstuffed sandwiches and cheesecake. And um, and I was thinking, oh, yeah, I remember when I remember going to, I mean, I live in New York now, but I remember going to New York um, to, you know, the, the famous delis. Of course, Cats is still there, but yeah. like all the ones in Times Square are kind of gone. And um, and I think that that's sort of, I mean, people in New York will say, oh, my God, no, it's still a thing. But it's not as big of a thing as it used to be at all. Well, um, you can go there and ask for extra bread because they know you're going to make a second sandwich. Right. Because nobody can eat that much. But I'm happy to say that that's not a, that's not a trendy thing right now in yes. New York. We, like what's happening now is more grain bowls and salads and the only unfortunate side to that is that everybody just orders them on their phone to be delivered by a car, even if it's a couple blocks away. <laughs> because they don't want to be interrupted. Yeah. Right? <laughs> just because they can. Right. Right. So, Elizabeth, thank you very much for being here. and uh, I could talk food all day with you. I think it's been a great fun. Absolutely. Um, so... Thank you. And this is Liz Williams. You've been listening to Tip of the Tongue, which can be found on the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation at natfab.org. Thanks for listening.